Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, I'm your host Norm and this is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing, you know, recently. And on this episode are Mozart Games, Dice and Dragons, Board on the Air, The Meeple Dungeon, Meeple and the Moose, The Tabletop Bellhop, Board Game Hot Takes, and Cardboard Conjecture. And I've always mentioned it, so I'll mention it again. uh, In the show notes, there's links to the cast. Check it out. It's fun. And enjoy the podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Morris back again for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. If you don't follow me on Twitter already, you can check me out there as SpiderMo. That's Spider with a Y for some of my insights into board gaming, craft beer, and some random rants and raves. On this week's episode, I want to talk about one of the most hotly discussed games from the last year and a half, Cascadia, from designer Randy Flynn, and published by Flatout Games, along with AEG. Cascadia was the 2022 Spiel des Jahres award winner, and that accolade is very well deserved. In Cascadia, players are building an ever-changing ecosystem and placing various animals within that ecosystem. It's a tile-laying game with some pattern building and a sort of an area-majority aspect to it as well. Basically, on a player's turn, they are going to take a habitat tile and an animal token from one of the four sets that are available on the table. They come in sets, and you have to take both the token and the tile that are with each other, unless you have a nature token that allows you to break up the pair which I'll explain shortly. The tiles will show you one of two habitats, like wetlands, mountains, etc. And there will also be one to three animals that are printed on the tile, showing what types of animals can live on that specific tile. You'll place your tile first, and then place the animal token that you took, either on that tile or another empty tile that you have in your tableau in front of you. You want to match your habitats up as much as you can because at the end of the game, players will each score points for the largest of each of the five habitats that they've built. There's also some bonus points that if if they happen to have the largest of that habitat type amongst all of the players. However, you'll also be scoring for the animals that you've placed during the game, and each animal will score in slightly different ways. There are multiple cards for each of the five animal types that are in the game, so you have to build as to what they all want during that game, and you can't bank on a certain strategy every single time. You might score points for each hawk that you have that's not adjacent to any other hawk in your tableau, while your foxes will want to be surrounded by one specific animal type that can't be a fox. Bears might score for each pair of them that aren't adjacent to any other bears, and salmon will usually score based on building runs of them, but the way that they score will change slightly from game to game. There's no way that you can maximize points for both of your habitats as well as the animals that you draft, but you'll need to balance each one out as you add them to your tableau. 
Each time that you put an animal on a tile showing just a single habitat, you score a nature token. And that can be kept until the end of the game for a point for each one of those that you've collected, or you can cash it in on a later turn to take a token and tile that are not paired up with one another, or you can use it to get rid of all of the animal tokens and refresh the market if you aren't seeing the species that you need at the moment. Because nature tokens are only worth one point apiece at the end of the game, it's usually best to spend them if you need to. Although those points could be the difference between winning and losing at the end of the game, so it's not something that you just want to throw away if you don't need to. Cascadia is a great wait for what the game offers. Each turn you have difficult decisions to make, but I never felt like I was agonizing over those choices, and my brain wasn't being twisted inside out trying to sort out placement and scoring opportunities. There's another game from Flatout that shares some of the similarities with Cascadia. It's called Calico, but I found it to be way more brain-burning than this one, and I enjoy the space that Cascadia takes up much more due to this. I enjoy thinky games, but I just found that the depth of Calico to be disconnected to its theme. Cascadia is the perfect marriage of theme and weight, in my opinion. Turns can be pretty quick, and the market's always changing, so it's best not to get too attached to the combo that you just drew at the end of your turn, as most likely, it's not going to be there by your next turn in a four-player game. If yourself and the player in front of you are both competing for the same type of animal, you might struggle quite a bit, and it's not uncommon for players to groan when someone flushes the market just before their turn, or a lot of excitement starts to build up when a salmon finally shows up on the market, even though there is an equal number of each animal in the bag. Those little fish just tend to be slippery, and they never appear when you need them. There's also a solid solitaire mode in the game, as well as an achievement system that can be used to track multiple games, to see who does the best over several games of Cascadia. It's not really a campaign per se, but it does allow for a way to track games over multiple sessions. There's also a family mode that makes scoring much easier for those that are not as into board games as many of us hobbyists. The amount of variability that's contained in this small box really is astounding, and if you haven't given Cascadia a try yet, I honestly feel it's one of the best games that Flatout has produced so far, and they do have a very good solid history of great games. Another quick little game that I played this week was called Push, and it's a Prospero Hall-designed game of Push Your Luck for two to six players. It's a simple concept where the active player will reveal cards one at a time from a deck, and they'll place those cards into one of three stacks on the table until either they choose to stop or they happen to bust. A player can bust if they cannot add a card to the stack because that stack either has that number shown on the card or the stack also has the color of the card that you drew. It's a really simple concept and one that's more fun than it actually deserves to be. If a player busts, they don't collect any cards, and instead they have to roll the die that's included. And if they roll a color that matches any cards that they've collected previously, they have to discard all of those cards from their game. If the active player didn't bust, they instead take one of the stacks of cards that they created, and they put it in front of them to score at the end of the game. Then each player in turn order will also take one of the remaining stacks of cards left behind, until there's none left. Players will also have to roll the die if any of the cards that they took have the die shown on them too. So there's a bit of a balancing act when you're drawing cards as to what stacks to add them to. Instead of drawing cards on your turn, you can, choose, uh, you can instead choose to bank one of the colors that you've collected, putting them aside and keeping them safe from that die roll should it happen. You might waste a turn, but in return, you will guarantee yourself some points at the end of the game. Once one player does this action, it's not too uncommon for others to follow suit on their turns in order to try to keep pace. 
Once the draw pile is empty and players take the cards that round, everybody totals up the points that they've collected, and the player with the most points wins. Push is a super quick and wonderful way to kill 10 minutes while waiting for someone to arrive or just to end off a longer game night. It has that one more time feel to it, as players who felt that their luck was all bad hope to reverse their fortunes. It's one of those fun little games that seems to pack more punch than it should, and several people at our table commented that it really is what Uno should have been. Grab yourself a copy if you happen to see it. I doubt you'll be disappointed. Thanks for listening to my thoughts this week about both Cascadia and Push. Let me know on Twitter if you've played either of them, or if you're curious and want to hear more info. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Once again, I am Chris Morris, and thanks for listening. May all of your dice rolls be critical successes. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dice and Dragons, and you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. What is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And what game have we been playing? My Little Pony. Adventures in Equestria. Now, this is a deck-building game published by Renegade Game Studios, designed by the Renegade Games design team of Dan Blanchett and T.C. Petty III. So this is a... It's a cooperative game. We played another cooperative game. Yay! I think that's what we're going to be playing pretty much till the end of the year right now. <laughs> well, we played a lot of competitive, so it's fine with me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's for one to four players, play 45 to 90 minutes, ages 14 and above. But, you know, I think it uh, could be played by younger players. Uh, we, we both agree it can definitely be played by younger players for sure. Uh, there's a lot of resource types which we'll talk about and you can hear a lot more of our thoughts about the age and the resource types in our review that will be coming out, I believe, the day after this is released or the same day. I'm not quite sure exactly when this episode will be hitting the streets. So what did you think of this, Julie? We were actually playing an IP that was probably more up your alley than anything we've been playing specifically IP-based recently. Well, uh, I mean, yes, I played with My Little Ponies when I was like four years old, but that was a while ago. And uh, this version really isn't the version that uh, that I know. And it's been so long that I really don't remember it much. Uh, but that being said, it was nice to play with something lighter and, um, and you know, more colorful. <laughs> I, I do like the art. Uh, the art is taken from the new Adventures in Equestria uh, TV series. So you should recognize a lot of the stills that are being used. It also fits very well with the deck building game. So if you are a fan of the current uh, iteration, it is very well represented. Uh, what did you think of the, the gameplay, having all the different resources, which is typically a taboo in a deck building game? How did that work for you? I didn't really have an issue. They worked well. Um, it was an interesting game mechanic. Um, you know, at first when you're explaining everything, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to play this to figure it out. But it wasn't uh, as complicated. Yes, we have some experience with a bunch of different types of deck builders. So, you know, we're not uh, novices, obviously, when it comes to comes to deck builders. Um, but it, I found it uh, fairly easy to play. Yeah, the game is definitely easy to play. Managing the resources where you're going to be getting that age 
ages 14 plus because the game has four different resource types. Now, if it wasn't for the fact that you could actually store resources uh, using different tokens, I think that would be something that could be a big negative for the game and be dragging it down, kind of like when we were playing Scott Pilgrim with three different types of resources and the fighting cards to manage, and it just didn't work. Uh, this one yeah, definitely... This is no Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Now, this definitely did a much better job of capturing... I'd say uh, those resources in a way that's thematic to the property, but also something that is not overly complicated. Now, one of the biggest issues I think that we both did have with the game is the difficulty. Well, I mean, it, it's not very difficult, uh, but it varies, right? Exactly. The Because it's a deck builder, depending on the cards that come up, depending on the amount of situations you're using in the deck and when they come up, you could have some fairly challenging games. Or you can have some very easy games. We get one game that was a little bit more challenging than uh, than the others because well, we got yeah, we situation got after situation after situation. Early in the game, we hadn't had time to build up resources yet. And other games, we did not see too many situations. The last game we played had all eight situations. I think we saw three out of the eight, and it was not that difficult. We worked together, and we won the day. Now... The slogan from My Little Pony is friendship is magic. And how do you feel about the cooperative aspects, the way that you have to work together in the game, as well as the locations? I think we've uh, we've talked enough about it at that point. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you definitely, they, add to, they added some complexity about how you can collaborate, uh, obviously only being able to use um, the, uh, the tokens, at least for situations. Um, and, you know, there's some aspects of it that, uh, of the different hurdles that you can't uh, do it all for another player. You, you have to actually both contribute. So, you know, it, it, it is still a cooperative game, uh, but, you know, you're building your deck um, for your player, right? Yeah, and you still have to do well. Now, the other players can help you out. There were also some very cool asymmetric abilities that can help out all ponies, which I do really enjoy. But also, let's say another thing, not all ponies are created equal. I'd say that out of the six ponies we have in the box, there's probably about four of them that we like, and the others that were a little bit more meh on. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy, I enjoyed the ones with the sugar cubes. We figured out that uh, that was definitely uh, important. And I did like playing as Rainbow Dash, who could give movement uh, tokens to all ponies, which actually were fairly well in our favor as well. I found that the other one that had to spend a sugar cube uh, to give out that type of token was not nearly as useful. No. But overall, I can say that I enjoyed the game. It's not my IP. I still have fun with it. And yeah, you should definitely check out our review to hear our full thoughts. Anything else you want to add, Julie? No, I think that's it. So on that note, we're going to remind you to... Keep playing games. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Board in the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon. And this is What Have You Been Playing? Tonight we're going to talk about... After the Empire, a 2-4 to four player by Grey Fox Games... Yeah, it's a it's a king, castle builder defending your kingdom, basically. Yeah, there's some worker placement in it, uh, but you're building up your army to defend your walls, and your walls you're upgrading, you're adding turrets. Uh, you're able to buy refugees that are coming to your city to give you bonuses, buildings that will give you bonuses. Yeah, there's some card, card buying... Uh, there's a lot going on in this game. For, like, there is and there isn't. Uh, 
Yes. Right? It is fairly straightforward. Uh, the rules don't seem that complicated. Uh, There's a few ver- things you have to look into, but... Yeah, it's very tactile because you you actually... you know every, Everything's 3D. The, the boards are all neoprene. Yeah, well, the one I have. Yeah. We, I got everything. For you, you have the deluxe Kickstarter edition of this. Yeah. It's... So on your turn... There's going to be a few round. You're going to do eight rounds of the game, and each round is going to have six different sections. The first section is just prepping for the round, flipping over the first invader card and putting three face down and a face down siege, or depending on the round. Yeah. You'd always know where one of the invader forces is coming from. The other ones are all hidden. Yeah, and there's one to four invader forces. With a siege equipment. And one siege equipment. Uh, After that, you go into your worker placement phase where you're putting out, in the earlier rounds, three workers, then four, then five. Yeah, it's a lot like uh, Lords of Waterdeep where as you progress, you get an extra worker every couple of rounds. And you could get another worker if you get sacked by the invaders, but you don't want to do that late. You want to do that more earlier. You get a temporary worker. Yeah, a temporary worker for that one round. Yeah. But the worker placement spots are pretty self-explanatory. Get resources, recruit more units, buy cards. Yeah, there's about eight different spots. Eight eight to twelve different spots. Yeah. Okay, and then... Then you go into the invader phase where you flip over all the cards that you have face down for the invaders... And you put them all out on your board. After you've, after, before you do any of that, I guess you have to assign where your defenders are yeah, located you, on you, the walls. You have to pre-assign where you think your invaders are coming from, and the either your permanent wor- or permanent army or the mercenaries that you hire, you put out on the walls or inside of your castle. Yep. And then you flip over the cards. And then, and the invaders are going to be either swordsmen or archers. And the siege equipment will either be, like, catapults or siege ladders. Yeah. And they all uh, behave differently, of course. Uh, it's it, it, it's a very cool game. Uh, I found most of the... For seven rounds, I was able to defend myself no problem. Yes. The eighth round went horribly wrong. and, and It's not that you didn't prepare for it. It's just that... The way the cards came out, you yeah. had 30, like 20 guys coming from one wall. Yeah, and I I was winning up to that point. I, I don't think I was going to win because you had in-game scoring and I didn't. Yeah. Uh, but that last round really punished me. And it, yeah. it, it left me a little bitter, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it right? makes sense because in this game, if you can't defend your castle, you're going to lose points. Yeah. Early on, you're going to lose less points. Like if you... If you're at five gold, as the points are in this game, you go down to three. Not the worst thing. If you're at 42 gold, you go down to 26. Yeah, it's very punishing the later in the game that you get sacked. Yeah. Uh, I do want to keep playing it. We've only played it once. uh, But I do want to keep trying it. And I do want to watch a how-to video just to see if we did mess any of the rules up. Yep. Uh, We do that regularly with every game. Oh, yeah. Because uh, as as good a readers as we are, we miss small things, little things like with anybody, any 
anybody that says they play every game perfectly the first time, I think is uh, fibbing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it has a tactile feel. It's got an interesting battle mechanic. Uh, it's very tight in your moves. Like you don't have a lot of workers to go out, and there's some some certain things that you have to do every round. Yeah. So that's where maybe in the earlier rounds, like in the second game, we might be more lenient on our defense and just build up, get sacked, and then get that extra one worker for that next round. And yeah, and that's exactly it. There's almost that uh, early on that uh, tactical. I'm gonna get wiped out here, just so I can be stronger later. Yeah. yeah. And even how you build up your troops is different. Like if you're going heavy into mercenaries, you're going to be spending gold on them, but you don't have to feed them. If you're building a standing army, you need to make sure you keep your farms alive so you can keep enough food to feed your standing army. Yeah. And, and the way we were playing it is very hard to keep farms alive. I, I found at least. I, I generally had two on the highest level, one on the little one, and one that was constantly yeah. burnt down, but I was constantly going on the space that protected them from the invaders. Yeah. Yeah, so very neat game. Uh, looking forward to playing it some more. That is After the Empire. I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will talk to you next week. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the Watchmen Playing Wednesdays podcast. And this week we have a couple games to talk about. What's the first game, Anna Marie? The first game we're going to talk about is Scout by Kay Cagino, uh, designed by him and published by Oink Games. Yeah, Scout. This is the new, like, popular Oink game. This one's crazy popular. It was really hard to get our hands on a copy of this game. I love this game yeah you've been you've been mentioning scout a lot lately i just love it yeah and we finally got copies of it i think we got three or four copies actually well they're but, gonna... um because we're going to be giving some as christmas gifts i believe <laughs> but um scout is yeah it's a fantastic little card game and token game from uh oink and uh yeah so how does this game play it's really really cool so depending on the player count, the cards will uh, you'll, you, you might, might take out a couple cards, cards out of the deck. Yeah. But overall, your general this game plays two to five. Two to five, yeah. And you're going to deal out this deck evenly amongst the players, and you're also going to get a little uh, scout uh, token, and show scout token. and show token in front of you, and this and your your hand of cards. And you're going to take your hand dealt to you as is, and you're going to you're going to show it to yourself, and you're going to decide whether you want to keep the cards the way they are or flip them upside down and take them the other way because every card has two numbers on it a yeah. nine and a seven or a one and a four yeah. or whatever on one side or the other and that's such a neat mechanism in that game because you cannot change the order of the cards you nope. pick them up so the, as they're dealt to you you've got two options yeah so, uh, a side or b side basically yeah. and once you've decided on how you want to start the game you're going to pick a starting player, give this 
starting player token to that player and you begin and how do you begin you can do a few different things on your turn yeah you can you can do play like a, a set or a run so or a single card well a run yeah it could be a, yes. a run of a single card yeah because um, you have to picture your hand is going to have this mishmash of cards because right? you can't organize it at all organized so nothing, they're they're yeah. not in suits they're not in runs they're not like unless that's how they were picked Magically up came yeah that way. yeah so you, you might have down. like a pair together or something or yeah and ultimately you're trying to empty your hand out to yes. to go out to win the round sort of thing or you can also go out if a, another certain thing were to happen yeah we'll get there yeah but so you play <laughs> like either a single card maybe you wanted to play down just a two or something that you had that was sitting in a weird spot that you didn't like. And, and you if you take it out, out yeah, if you take it out of your hand, it's going to make two other cards go, go nice, now. nicer together. Yeah, now they go side by side in your hand. So then I'd play down my two, and then you would have option to play another single card. If you had a single card that could beat that two, you'd so play So higher, down. so like a three, four, five, any yep. of those. You could play it down, and you would simply beat my card, and you would take my card, flip it over, and score it as a point. Yes. And then we go back and forth doing this, but there's there's a few different yeah. options. So you can play down, like she said, you can play down runs, pairs, or like I should say sets yes. of different numbers. And sets always trump a run. Runs. So if there was a run of of say seven, eight, nine, and then you put down three fours, your three fours are going to beat the yep. seven, eight, nine. And I run. would take your seven, eight, nine, flip them over, and now I've scored three points yes. for myself. And you're going to go back and forth doing this, and so that that action we're talking about while we're doing that is called the show action but instead of doing a show action you can then instead do a scout action so if you'd like you put down the cards like you said uh, uh, 789 and I wanted to I really needed a 7 in my hand like to really make something work I could use the scout action and I could take that 7 and I could slide it into my hand and remember the 7 card also has another number opposite maybe a two that's yeah, on the bottom and i could take that card regardless of what number i could flip it around flip it over and stick it into my hand wherever i yes. like or i could even use the two right and throw it in wherever i like whatever makes sense for my hand and then if i do do that whoever's hand of cards was on the table at the time like the cards that were played yeah yours you would get a point for that. Just yeah. there's a little chip token, token, yeah, that you would get for that, and then it would go back to you, and you'd be able to do your thing again. Um, then there's also a an action called uh, scout and show. So you could do both things where you want to take a card that you saw on the table, throw it into your hand, and then you could play some cards down onto the table to try and beat the cards that are on the table. But then you'd have to flip over this special token that you have. Yeah, because you can only do the scout and show once, once per round. Once per round, yeah. Yeah. You flip over your little scout and show token to, to say that I've done that action and I can't do it again this round. And that's all you do is you go back and forth, back and forth doing this. Yeah. So you can, like you were saying before, you can win the game or win the round, I should say, if you go out, like if you have no cards left in your hand. Or let's say, um, I say, let's say there are three of us playing yep. and I put down a run of five. Like, yes, which would be huge. Huge, right? Everything fell, all fell into place. And you couldn't beat it. You were the next player. Yep. You couldn't beat it, so you would scout and scout take and one take of my cards. Card. Yep. And then the next player couldn't beat it. They would scout and take a card. Yep. And it came back to me and my cards that I laid down were still on the table. You win. I would win that round. Yep. And then uh, everybody else would have to, they would adjust their points, but I wouldn't yeah. have to count my points. And what would happen is basically whenever a round ends, if I trigger the end of a round for either reason, I'm always going to end up with just a bunch of points. 
but then you and whoever else might be playing is going to have whatever points they've accumulated for the round minus how whatever. many cards they have <laughs> whatever in cards hand. are in their that head that could yeah. be brutal you could have say seven or eight points but have five cards left in yeah. your hand and only end up with two points and it doesn't matter the value of the cards no it, it's just one card one point yes yeah and yeah that's the way the game works and you just you, you it says to play a round per player per but player. I would recommend with two players you probably want to play more than two rounds it's a little too quick mm-hmm. um, but at like a four or five player I think four and five rounds is pretty good yeah everybody um, gets to deal once yeah kind but of thing. I would I would go three four rounds if you're playing two players yeah just to just to make it a bit longer yeah but uh, no it's a really fun game the, the whole idea yeah. of not being able to adjust your cards in your hand and then having two options of a starting hand yeah. depending on what side you want to have up and down Really like it. Yeah, this game is fantastic. It is. It's one of the best oink <laughs> games out there, if not the best oink game we've played. So good. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Highly recommend Scout from Oink. Yes, me too. And we also have one other game we've been playing, and that would be Oak from Game Brewer. And this game we're not going to talk about on here because we are in the middle of playing it. It's currently set up on the table right in front of us here. And we are going to be reviewing Oak uh, on the next episode of the Meeple Dungeon podcast. Yeah, and we just finished doing our... Um, our we 50th did a, Our episode. 50th episode, which yes. was a top 10 kind of Christmas gift. Christmas gifts. game gift yes. ideas, yes. So, so take a listen if you want. Yeah, on check that, one. that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, that's it for this week. So we're going to run, and we'll see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleInTheMoves.com, and I'm here to talk to you about the games I played this week for what you've been playing Wednesday. This week, I'm continuing my recap from my CabinCon experiences. Last week, I talked about a five-hour play of Gaia Project and a very strange game of Scythe. Today, I'm taking you where my friends never go willingly, into the world of fast food management. But first, being the parent of a toddler, it seems impossible for me to sleep beyond 7am, so as per usual, I was first to rise. I took the morning to walk along the beach. When I came back, I prepped breakfast to make coffee, and I was still the only one awake, so I broke out Bullet Star and played a solo game as Rose Blanchett vs. Starry Night Sky. I've talked about the Bullet games on this podcast before several times, but if you're unfamiliar, Bullet Star and its predecessor Bullet Heart are a puzzly push-your-luck game about matching patterns and clearing discs, or pulling bullets off of your player board. Each character which each box, both Heart and Star, contain eight different characters, each with their own special abilities and patterns, offer an incredibly varied gameplay experience. The solo mode pits you against a boss, which every character has a boss mode on its reverse side, meaning that if you have both boxes, you'll have 16 characters to pick from and 16 boss challenges to throw yourself against. Basically, you pull bullets from a bag, place them on your player board, hope they don't fall all the way to the bottom, which would hit your heart points, Uh, You can spend action points to manipulate the bullets on the board and use your patterns to clear bullets, sending them to the boss. If you manage to send enough bullets to break all the boss's shields, you'll win. If you get hit with enough bullets, you'll die. And dying is bad. Starry Night Sky was a bit of a weird boss. Their pattern requires that you don't have a, a single bullet of a specific number on the turn that you break one of their shields. If you do, then you just automatically lose a life. At the same time, You can't just go wild and breaking shields, as if you break more than one shield in a round, you'll lose a life. Rose Blanchett's special ability was that she can rotate your patterns by 90, 180, or 270 degrees, but I've been so conditioned to believe that you absolutely cannot rotate your patterns that I completely forgot to do it for the whole game. 
I promptly lost the solo game, but I always enjoy exploring the different bosses and characters. And that was Bullet Star, designed by Joshua Van Langingham and published by Level 99 Games. The next game we played was Food Chain Magnate by Jerome Duman and Joris Weersinger, published by Splatter Spellin. Now, Food Chain Magnate is my favorite game of all time, and I've already written a lot of words about how much I like it, so check out my blog for my full review of this game. But here is a quick recap on how to play. Food Chain Magnate is an economic game where the player with the most money wins. Players are running competing fast food chains competing to satisfy the desires of your small community. At the start of the game, players only have themselves, the CEO. The CEO only has one ability, hire a new staff member. There are eight different workers that can be hired directly, all with different upgrade paths and abilities. The pricing manager lowers prices, the recruiting girl hires more people, the trainer upgrades workers, the errand boy and the kitchen trainees both produce different kinds of goods, the management trainees allow you to work more staff at once, and the marketing trainees put up advertisements which produce demands on the houses that they affect. Players take turns hiring and working their staff, slowly branching out in different directions. The trick of the game is that when a house demands goods, anyone can fulfill their order. If multiple restaurants can fulfill their order, the house will choose to go to whichever restaurant is the closest and with the lowest prices. If you drop your prices to the floor, people from the far corners of the town will flock to your restaurant, but you'll only be making pennies per product you sell. It's a delicate balance, and remember, money is points. And that's the basics of Food Chain Magnate. Adverts produce demands on houses, restaurants produce food, houses consume that food, everybody profits. Now, in this particular game, we included a couple expansion modules, the coffee shops being the most important one. The coffee shops is a weird little twist in that houses will never want coffee explicitly. They won't travel to your restaurant just for coffee. But if you have coffee and they pass by your doors on the way to another location, they'll stop in for a quick cup of joe. The first four rounds of the game are generally quick. I know some people complain about rote openings, but I don't mind them personally. In my game group, Two players generally take advantage of the recruiting girl strategy, while the two others take the trainer, and from there the strategies diverge. I quickly put up a burger billboard in the top left corner on a house with a garden, with the expectation that players would fight over delivering to that delivering to that house, and then I would cash in on the coffee sales. Unfortunately, Bear beat me to placing his coffee shop right on their driveway, but thankfully Bigfoot won the bidding war and sold the burger, which ran right by my restaurant, still allowing me to sell my coffee. Bigfoot and I hit $100 on the same turn, which means that we both obtained a bonus C CFO, which increased the amount of money that we earned each round by 50%. Bigfoot placed a park in, which, in the lowest corner, touching two more houses, increasing the amount of money that was coming in each round. Uh, a mailbox campaign also started generating interest on those houses, so I put a second coffee, sh a coffee shop up right next to Bigfoot's restaurant. Now I would sell two coffees to each of those houses each time they ate a Bigfoot, Bigfoot's blue bar, and I picked up the luxuries manager, and then my strategy was set. What I didn't anticipate was our CEOs dropping to two open management slots when the bank broke for the first time, reducing the number of staff that we could play. I had such grand plans to play trainers and generate coffee at the same time, as my coffee production was still low. So should I skip producing coffee for a round and let my trainers work so that I can produce even more coffee in future rounds, or should I issue the luxuries manager and take more money and train? It can be quite hard to know which way to go sometimes, and in the end, I succeeded at selling three coffees at a base price of $20 to houses with gardens, making it $40 per coffee, and my CFO worked his financial wizardry to turn that into $180 on a single turn. Bigfoot was selling several goods, but at the base price of $7 plus a $5 benefit to some goods. 
The bank broke just in the nick of time, as one more turn would have spelled disaster for my luxury coffee strategy. One more round and Bigfoot would have doubled my income easily. As it stood, the game ended with me in the lead with $395 and Bigfoot with $362. This play left players a little bit salty on the coffee modules, claiming it's a bit too hard to counter. Unlike selling food to houses, you need to ensure that you have the demand and that you're selling it less or closer to your opponents. But there's no way to steal someone's coffee sale. The combo of the luxuries manager with the coffee seems incredibly strong. My rebuttal is that my coffee production wouldn't scale. I'm lucky the game ended when it did, as one more turn would have dropped me to second place. Food Chain Magnate has no randomness. A big, part of, a big part of doing well in the game is being able to correctly identify what your opponents are going to do and cash in on their actions. In any case, I really enjoyed myself, but as I always do when I play Food Chain Magnate. And that's all I have to talk about this week. For more board game reviews, check out my blog, MeepleInTheMoose.com. And have a happy Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. Now, I got three games to talk about this week, starting with our first play of the Belgium Beers Race, which was published as a collaboration between BRY Games and Grand Gamers Guild, who I have to thank, along with one of our awesome Patreon patrons, for getting a review copy to me from Gen Con. Now, the Belgium Beers Race is an action optimization time track based Euro game all about taking a three day hiking trip around Belgium and tasting some of the best beers in the world. Now, I gotta say this game had my name all over it, and I basically begged Mark Spector to let me give it a try. I am a huge beer fan, and more importantly in this case, a Belgian beer fan. Now, if you know what I mean when I say Trappist beers, and you listen to this podcast, so I know you're a board gamer, you need to pick this game up. Enough said. Now, for the rest of you, gameplay is pretty straightforward. You spend time units to move around Belgium and visit breweries where you can buy beer and cheese, do beer tastings, collect glassware and coasters, and so on. Now, a big part of this game is choosing how to move between these breweries, which is a, a huge part of this. You can bike, which is reliable and can actually sober you up if you take a long enough bike ride, as long as you haven't had too much in the first place and can't ride. Now, public transit, which has the possibility of running late, is another option, but and you could end up taking a bit more time, but it does give you a chance to drink some of the beers you picked up. Uh, that's got to be a Belgian thing. That doesn't work here in Canada. Um, hiking, or sorry, hitchhiking is the third option, which is in general the fastest way to get around, but can be random. You've got to roll some dice and see if anyone picks you up. And the odds are not great. You've got a 50-50 chance the first time, and then it improves the multiple times you go in a row. Um, so hitchhiking can be the quickest way around, but it isn't always reliable. Now, along with this movement system is an interesting sobriety system and various end game and in game goals to kind of give you direction on where you should be heading. Uh, there's also rewards for getting to the first places, getting to a brewery first before other players, and it mixes up each game, which breweries are going to give those rewards. Now, there's also a fun mechanic where if two players meet up at the same brewery, they have to give each other a beer from their backpack and do a toast. Now, scoring overall is very much a point salad with all kinds of different ways to score points, including, of course, tasting different beers, for toasting other players, for visiting specific breweries and brewery type, for collecting a massive amount of cheese, and so on. 
Now, while we found the board to be a bit busy, and I gotta admit, I don't love the art until I found out that it was actually done by a Belgian beer label maker, which moved it a step up. It's not the clearest. It's a little hard to see from across the board. Uh, and the rules were originally in French and have been translated, and there's some odd wording there. Like, they're not definitely not the worst rules I've ever read, but it was worth checking Board Game Geek for the rules FAQs and some corrections and clarifications. Once we had everything down, though, the gameplay in this game is a lot of fun. Uh, it, it even ha had some thematic feels going to it as well. And dropping the theme, yes, even the one player in our group who doesn't drink beer really enjoyed this game. Honestly, once you get the rules down, like once we played half a round, the next time we play this game, it is going to fly. I honestly think this is about a step above Ticket to Ride. As long as you have someone there that's played before and that can kind of teach you the different movement types and when you roll the dice and when not, and how to do the score. You get a really simple game here. Now, at this point, I've only played once, right? I'm not ready for a full review. That's going to be a couple weeks. Uh, the one thing I am worried about is after multiple plays, if this will start to feel the same, that you're doing the same thing every game, or perhaps there's a strategy that stands out as a, a perfect way to play, like a certain set of those points to get. Uh, for example, I know some board game geek people talking about a broken cheese combo. I haven't figured that one out myself. So stay tuned in coming weeks as I talk more about the Belgian beers race. Now, next up was Black Brim 1876. Uh, this one was sent to us from Puzzling Pursuits and is very much a puzzle box, escape room in a box style game. Now, last Sunday, our entire family sat down to play the first of two parts that are included in the box, and we had a great time. Unlike many other puzzle games, we played this particular one features, at least in part one, five different puzzles to be solved, each of which is independent. They're each their own thing, where you need the solutions to all five to unlock the second part of the game. This is awesome because it let all five of us try our hand at solving our own puzzles. Like right at the beginning, we put them out on the table. Like who wants the newspaper? Who wants the cryptograph? Who wants the, the pictures, the postcards? And everyone kind of got to do their own thing, which of course then led to swapping the puzzles around, a couple players working on one puzzle together. And in the end, once we had four of the puzzles solved, all five of us working on the final one together and eventually figuring out the solution. Um, that was awesome. I love the fact that all of us got to do our own thing and be involved. And honestly, as a family experience, this was so much better than some of our past experiences, which are more of the kids fighting over who got to hold the cards. And is it my turn to read yet? Or can I play with the app? Can I do the thing? With everyone having their own thing to do, it was just a much more enjoyable experience. And to that end, my wife, Deanna, and my mother-in-law, Brenda, have already declared this is their favorite escape room style game we play. And honestly, we played a lot of them. I'm not going to get into them here, but if you go over to the blog and click on reviews and start scrolling through, you're going to find quite a few escape room mystery style games that we review. So that's pretty high praise from them. Now, we haven't finished yet, so final review still pending. Next Sunday, we're probably going to finish this up. So if we finish it up this coming Sunday... I should have a final formal review ready for our next podcast recording, which is a week from today on Wednesday. Now, speaking of podcast recordings, my last gameplay for this week is Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade, a deck building card game that Japanime Games was awesome enough to send out our way. Now, I got in a couple plays this past week, one two-player with Sean and one three-player with Sean and Deanna, and I've had uh, three plays before that at other player counts. Uh, these plays were honestly in prep for our review segment for tonight's show, this Wednesday, uh, where we're going to be reviewing Racco and this anime-inspired card game. Now, honestly, what it'd be best is if you don't just joined us for our live show tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop for the full review. 
But just in case you can't, and I don't want to, I don't want to leave you hanging. Um, if you can't do that, I will just say here, Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade, a deck building game is, is fantastic. It is, it is one of the best deck building games I've ever played. And I love deck building games. I've been playing them since Dominion and I played all the big ones that have come out since. Uh, features their rotating market, uh, Star Realms like combat system, or combo system, sorry, Star Realms like combo system, asymmetric player power, something I love in any game, um, board game like movement system where you're flying to different planets, and most importantly, this fantastic thematic forced cooperation in a competitive game system. I don't know a better way to word that, where you are going to other planets and you can force other people to move with them and you can use their special abilities, whether they want you to or not to score, you know, cat bag the criminal. I love the feel of that. That felt very cowboy bebop and it was really neat. Now I will say uh, the three of us playing these last two rounds, we're all bebop fans and we love it as bebop fans, but I've also played this with people who have never seen the anime or the Netflix show and they love this game as well. It's just a really solid deck build. I'm, even without the review tonight. If you're a Bebop fan, pick it up. If you're a deck building fan, pick it up. Now, if you want to know more, again, tune into our live recording tonight or wait for our podcast to drop next Tuesday or watch for the written review and video reviews, which will be going live on YouTube and our blog. Well, that's it for the games I've been playing this past week. Remember, you can always find our content at tabletopbellhop.com and you can find me on what feels like 87 different social media sites with the Twitter diaspora going on. If you're on a site, I'm probably there. Tabletop bellhop, one word. And reach out anywhere. Thank you for joining me tonight for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. I am Mo Tuzno. Good day and game on. Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes podcast. This week on my table, I've had a little uh, remake of a classic game. You've probably all heard of Castles of Burgundy. Well, this was the Castles of Burgundy, the card game. And uh, I've been interested in trying this for a while. Uh, Castle of Burgundy is a big hit around my household. I played a lot with my wife, my friend Jen. Lots of games of Castle of Burgundy going, around, going on around here. And uh, I happened to be in a half-price books this weekend. First time walking in there. Didn't really know what to expect. There were some cool deals in there. But one of the deals I found was a unsealed copy of the Castle of Burgundy, the card game, for only $6.99. Now, like I said, heard decent things about it. It seems like a no-brainer. So I picked it up, busted it out, figured out how to play in about five minutes. And this game was pretty good. It was uh, very reminiscent of Castle Burgundy, obviously, trying to remake that thing. The biggest difference between the two was that your action selection, instead of rolling two dice and using those two actions, is you're going to draw two cards off a deck of six cards that were randomly dealt to you at the beginning of the round. And you're going to choose one of those two actions. You're going to get six actions per round instead of 10 actions. And uh, the cards are multi-use cards. When they're drawn into your hand, they're used as dice that you can use to do one of the basic actions of Castle of Burgundy. There is going to be a market of cards out in the middle of the board. Uh, there are six rows with a card at the beginning that represents which dice they are. So it'll be one, two, three, four, five, six. And then randomly at the start of the round, there'll be some cards distributed amongst those. 
So you can either use the dice in your hand to buy one of those cards out on the table and put it into a reserve, just like the regular Castle Burgundy game. Once it's in your reserve, the card has a dice number on it. So you could play one of those cards in your hand using the dice number to match the card that you want to play into your tableau. Or you can do a couple other things. You can use the dice to just uh, take workers, for example, take up to two workers. So a lot of this feels very much like the basic Castle Burgundy game. But instead of playing tiles onto a board, you're building this tableau. Why are you doing that? Just like in Castle Burgundy, as you play these cards in your tableau, they're going to give you some immediate benefit most of the time. Most of those are going to be something simple like, uh, you know, getting an, a free action, getting more workers, uh, you know, getting a certain type of card out of the tableau in the middle. Very similar to Castle Burgundy. But also, the, there's a little bit of a set collection element. At the end of the game, the cards all have a number printed on them. And you have to have a set of three in order to actually get the, the point number printed on them. So most of your basic buildings will have a three on it. If you get three buildings by the end of the game, it's going to be worth three points. If you get three um, you know, animal cards, it's going to be worth four points, etc. So there's a little bit more about trying to collect certain sets and fighting other people for those sets versus Castle Burgundy where you're trying to you know, race for those regions of your board and trying to fill out regions and things like that. There's also a little bit of a race element, just like in Castle Burgundy. If you're the first person to get a set of three of a specific type of card, you're going to get a one-point bonus. If you're the first person to get a card of each type, you're going to get a four-point bonus. Second person would get three. Third would get two, etc. So you're racing for these different elements. You're trying to optimize, get the best benefits at work for you. This was pretty good, I think, for one reason. I mean, it was a little bit quicker to set up, get started, a little quicker to play through, a much smaller box presence. Obviously, this would be easier to travel with. The one slight turnoff for me is that as a card game, it had a lot of table space taken up. And so it didn't really feel like a more con compact experience or presence. The game setup and teardown was a little bit quicker, so that was a benefit. But there's also a, a high degree of like just clutter when you just have these rows and columns and stacks of cards everywhere on the board that turns me off a little bit versus having a board with specific places to put things. So overall, I'm glad I picked it up. I think this will be a game that is a good fit in some situations. I'll probably throw this in my luggage every time we go on a little trip. Um, you know, we'll be able to you know, find half an hour and bust this out and play. It'll play a little quicker than the basic game of Castle Burgundy. But I'll be surprised if it very often finds space on the table when we're at home, when we have Castle Burgundy in our game room and we could pull that out instead. I think the basic original version is just a little bit more interesting, a little bit more less cluttered, a little less cluttered, I guess that'd be the right term. But uh, this card-based version is, again, very compact, a nice alternative to it. I had fun with it. I think I will be going back to it in the right situations. That was Castle of Burgundy, the card game. If you'd like to listen to our uh, to anything else that we have to say about games, you can find us at the Board Game Hot Takes podcast. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at BG underscore Hot Takes or on our Facebook group, the Board Game Hot Takes group on Facebook. Until next time, take care, everybody.
Hey there, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast. And uh, what have I been playing recently? What you been playing? Uh, just last night in the Gamer's Garage Wednesday night game, uh, Pixie Queen. It was Jordan's turn to pick, and he, yeah, he selected Pixie Queen. Came out 2017, uh, published by Bard Centrum Gear, a game brewer, and uh, designed by Rudy Sut. Suchens? Oh, I'm so sorry. I mispronounced that one. Uh, two to five players, 60 to 120 minutes. And uh, it is, I've heard about this game before, and uh, I've heard it described as uh, kind of a nasty game because everyone's getting kind of chipped up a little bit. And so my initial thoughts before we even play this is, is my background knowledge of this is, I always thought of this as kind of like a take that game. So it never really, uh, uh, you know, got close to my attention, <laughs> tension periphery. And, uh, but this is what I love about uh, Gamer's Garage. We take, you know, we roll the D20 and see who gets to bring, the, you know, the next choice. So I'll play games that I would have never considered. And um, I have to say, uh, now, I mean, the game itself, uh, let me kind of describe it. It's like, it's like the whole fantasy pixie things, and there's a pixie queen, and uh, she's nasty and demanding. And uh, basically, this game is, uh, you know, uh, like a good euro. The most victory points at the end wins the game. But what happens is it's not take that, because you're not necessarily, you know, like risk where you're going in and you're just destroying somebody's, you know, property or, you know, or country or, or you know, uh, um, border. Uh, this one is more so the everything just chips away at you. There's, if you, if you don't get this done, you lose this many points. If you don't do this, you lose this many points. Uh, at the end of the round, uh, base, basically, you know how it's the opposite of point salad. It's, uh, it's point thrashing because one of the scheduled uh, checklists in the round is uh, taking, taking lashes. <laughs> and uh, if you have so many play, if you have so many pixies still in your, in your, I guess, home base, you lose some points. Uh, if you don't go climbing up the ore, uh, or sorry, the uh, I think it's the the silver and the gold tracks, you lose some more points. Uh, if you don't donate to uh, uh, the food, the preferential food that you're guessing um, that the pixie queen wants, um, you get to penalized again. And uh, um, that's interesting. It's interesting the way that Th that uh, point structure works. I kind of dug it. Uh, another thing too about the Pixies is there's also this kind of pyramid race um, because as I said, uh, like picture yourself a pyramid and you have uh, everybody's starting point is like the little Pixie nest at the bottom and there's one, two, three, one, two, three, four, maybe five levels. And the fifth level is is the the solo pixie queen spot. And if you get there at the end of the round uh, and are able to advance that spot, you get to now. This is where I've discovered with the you know the meat of the game are getting these rewards. There are rewards for feeding the entire pixie population. There are rewards for summiting and being the solo person left in the pixie queen spot. There are also a set of 
point value rewards, and I'll quickly tell you what, how that works, of uh, cashing in gold for gold rings. Um, and uh, how that works is in the feeding part, uh, it only takes a, a, one of each resource. Um, if, you can f if you can donate that plus add an extra one to this chain, you get to take four points. And then it goes four, five, six, seven, all the way to ten. And that chain, the more people go to that spot and, and take that action and increase this chain of donated food items and resources, uh, that's the point value going up. Huge points in there if you can sneak your way into there all the time. Uh, the same thing with the Pixie Queen. The first one there gets 10 points. The next one, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, right? So the decreasing value. And then on the, the gold key one, same thing. Uh, the first one to, to forge a key, uh, forge not key, forge a ring, gets uh, 10 points, and then it goes down. Game ends when either one of those things loses its five, I, I believe there's five or six um, uh, um, uh, victory point chits, or you finish the entire seven rounds, I believe. Um, yeah, the fact that I, that I can remember all of those details from one play last night tells me that it's still sitting in my head which tells me that i'm not really done exploring this game yet um now i didn't even say if i liked it or if i didn't like it i think i like it i i'm, I'm i might try to false out of that a little higher <laughs> wait dogs will start barking um uh yeah i think i like that game now that i understand that it's a reverse point salad where it's just mitigating, mitigating the, 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 the thrashing that you're going to get um, of each round. And you, it's one of those great games where you can't do everything. You have to pick one thing and lean into it, right? Or pick one and, and a little bit of something and lean into it. But uh, the balanced approach gets you a balanced, <laughs> lame score at the end of the game. But like I said... Uh, to Dave and Jordan, because right, Jordan, I think Jordan, I mean, I think, I know Jordan loves this game, because immediately he's like, what do you think of it? And uh, I honestly said that about midway of the game, that's when I kind of went, oh, okay, that's how, and then and analyzed my state of the game and went, and I have no chance of winning. <laughs> but I, I saw how, from where I was, I saw, okay, what can this do now? Now that I understand, I'm going to try and, and, uh, see if I can climb out of the hole that I created for myself. So uh, that being said, yeah, I'm, I want to play this again. And that's coming from like, I'm lucky if I play a game four times <laughs> ever, <laughs> not just in a year. Um, so yeah, Pixie Queen, uh, designed by Rudy Sengens and published by Bard Centrum Gear and Game Brewer. Uh, that takes us to perfect time we're getting to about an hour uh thank you so much for listening to all of what we had to say about the games that we've been playing recently and, and i hope uh i hope you've you've learned that you like or dislike certain games because uh you know that's important we're doing homework we're always doing homework but it don't consider it homework right um and of course to all the content creators who take the time to uh, you know, d uh, time, that's probably in my head, the most valuable resource. And uh, every week we have some wonderful people contributing their thoughts on games. And thank you so much. Um, and of course, that being said, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh?